Chapter 4 of Gossip in a Library. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eugene Smith. Gossip in a Library by Edmund Goss. Chapter 4 Death's Duel. Death's Duel, or A Consolation to the Soul Against the Dying Life and Living Death of the Body delivered in a sermon at Whitehall before the King's Majesty in the beginning of Lent, 1630, by that late learned and reverend divine John Donne, Doctor in Divinity and Dean of St. Paul's, London, being his last sermon and called by His Majesty's household the Doctor's Own Funeral Sermon. London, printed by Thomas Harper for Richard Redmer, and Benjamin Fisher, and are to be sold at the sign of the Talbot and Aldersgate Street, 1632. The value of this tiny quarto with the enormous title depends entirely, so far as the collector is concerned, on whether or no it possesses the frontispiece. So many people, not having the fear of books before their eyes, have divorced the latter from the former, that a perfect copy of Death's Duel is quite a capture over which the young bibliophile may venture to glory, but let him not fancy that he has a prize if his copy does not possess the portrait plate. One has but to glance for a moment at this frontispiece to see that there is here something very much out of the common. It is engraved in the best seventeenth-century style, and represents, apparently, the head and bust of a dead man wrapped in a winding-sheet. The eyes are shut, the mouth is drawn, and nothing was ever seen more ghastly. Yet it is not really the picture of a dead man. It represents the result of one of the grimmest freaks that ever entered into a pious mind. In the early part of March 1630-1631, the great Dr. Dunn, Dean of St. Paul's, being desperately ill and not likely to recover, called a woodcarver into the deanery, and ordered a small urn, just large enough to hold his feet, and a board, as long as his body, to be produced. When these articles were ready, they were brought into his study, which was first warmed, and then the old man stripped off his clothes, wrapped himself in a winding-sheet, which was open only so far as to reveal the face and beard, and then stood upright in the little wooden urn, supported by leaning against the board. His limbs were arranged like those of dead persons, and when his eyes had been closed, a painter was introduced into the room and desired to make a full-length and full-size picture of this terrific object, this solemn theatrical presentment of life in death. The frontispiece of Death's Duel gives a reproduction of the upper part of this picture. It was said to be a remarkably truthful portrait of the great poet and divine, and it certainly agrees in all its proportions with the accredited portrait of Dunn as a young man. It appears, for Walton's account is not precise, that it was after standing for this grim picture, but before its being finished, that the dean preached his last sermon, that which is here printed. He had come up from Essex in great physical weakness, in order not to miss his appointment to preach in his cathedral before the king on the first Friday in Lent. He entered the pulpit with so emaciated a frame, and a face so pale and haggard, and spoke with a voice so faint and hollow, that at the end 
the king himself turned to one of his suite and whispered, The dean has preached his own funeral sermon. So, indeed, it proved to be, for he presently withdrew to his bed and summoned his friends around to take a solemn farewell. He died very gradually after about a fortnight, his last words being, not in distress or anguish, but as it would seem, in visionary rapture, quote, I were miserable if I might not die, end quote. All this fortnight, and to the moment of his death, the terrible life-size portrait of himself in his winding-sheet stood near his bedside, where it could be the, quote, hourly object, end quote, of his attention. So one of the greatest churchmen of the seventeenth century, and one of the greatest, if the most eccentric, of its lyrical poets, passed away in the very pomp of death on the 31st of March, 1631. There was something eminently calculated to arrest and move the imagination in such an end as this, and people were eager to read the discourse which the, quote, sacred authority, end quote, of his majesty himself had styled the dean's funeral sermon. It was therefore printed in 1632. As sermons of the period go, it is not long, yet it takes a full hour to read it slowly aloud, and we may thus estimate the strain which it must have given to the worn-out voice and body of the dean to deliver it. The present writer once heard a very eminent churchman, who was also a great poet, preach his last sermon at the age of ninety. This was the Danish bishop Grundtvig. In that case, the effort of speaking, the extraction as it seemed, of the sepulchral voice from the shrunken and ashen face, did not last more than ten minutes. But the English divines of the Jacobean age, like their Scottish brethren of today, were accustomed to stupendous efforts of endurance from their very diaconate. The sermon is one of the most creepy fragments of theological literature it would be easy to find. It takes as its text the words from the 68th Psalm, quote, and unto God the Lord belong the issues of death, end quote. In long, stern sentences of sonorous magnificence, adorned with fine similes and gorgeous words, as the funeral trappings of a king might be with gold lace, the dying poet shrinks from no physical horror and no ghostly terror of the great crisis which he was himself to be the first to pass through. That which we call life, he says, and our blood seems to turn chilly in our veins as we listen, is but hebdomada mortium, a week of death, seven days, seven periods of our life spent in dying, a dying seven times over, and there is an end. Our birth dies in infancy, and our infancy dies in youth, and youth and rest die in age, and age also dies and determines all. Nor do all these, youth out of infancy, or age out of youth, arise so as a phoenix out of the ashes of another phoenix formerly dead, but as a wasp, or a serpent out of a carrion, or as a snake out of dung. End quote. We can comprehend how an audience composed of men and women whose ne'er-do-well relatives went to the theatre to be stirred by such tragedies as those of Marston and Cyril Tourneur, would themselves snatch a sacred pleasure from awful language of this kind in the pulpit. 
there is not much that we should call doctrine no pensive or consolatory teaching no appeal to souls in the modern sense the effect aimed at is that of horror of solemn preparation for the advent of death as by one who fears in the flutter of mortality to lose some peculiarity of the skeleton some jag of the vast crooked scythe of the spectre the most ingenious of poets the most subtle of divines whose life had been spent in examining man in the crucible of his own alchemist fancy seems anxious to preserve to the very last his powers of unflinching spiritual observation the dean of st paul's whose reputation for learned sanctity had scarcely sufficed to shelter him from scandal on the ground of his fantastic defence of suicide was familiar with the idea of death and greeted him as a welcome old friend whose face he was glad to look on long and closely the leaves at the end of this little book are filled up with two copies of funeral verses on dean dunn these are unsigned but we know from other sources to whom to attribute them each is by an eminent man the first was written by dr henry king then the royal chaplain and afterward bishop of chichester to whom the dean had left besides a model in gold of the synod of dort that painting of himself in the winding-sheet of which we have already spoken this portrait dr king put into the hands of nicholas stone the sculptor who made a reproduction of it in white marble with a little urn concealing the feet this was placed in st paul's cathedral of which king was chief residentiary and may still be seen in the present cathedral king's elegy is very prosy in starting but improves as it goes along and is most ingenious throughout these are the words in which he refers to the appearance of the dying preacher in the pulpit Quote, thou like the dying swan didst lately sing thy mournful dirge in audience of the king when pale looks and weak accents of thy breath presented so to life that peace of death that it was feared and prophesied by all thou thither camest to preach thy funeral the other elegy is believed to have been written by a young man of twenty-one who was modestly and enthusiastically seeking the company of the most famous london wits this was edward hyde thirty years later to become earl of clarendon and finally to leave behind him manuscripts which should prove him the first-rate english historian his verses here bespeak his good intention but no facility in rhyming it was left for the riper disciples of the great divine to sing his funerals in more effective numbers of the crowd of poets who attended him with music to the grave none expressed his merits in such excellent verses or with so much critical judgment as thomas carew the king's sower in ordinary it is not so well known but that we quote some lines from it quote, the fire that fills with spirit and heat the delphic choir which kindled first by thy promethean breath glowed here awhile lies quenched now in thy death the muses garden with pedantic weeds o'erspread was purged by thee the lazy seeds of servile imitation thrown away and fresh invention planted thou didst pay the debts of our penurious bankrupt age End quote. Quote, whatsoever wrong by ours was done the greek or latin tongue thou hast redeemed and opened us a mine of rich and pregnant fancy drawn a line of masculine expression which 
had good old Orpheus seen, or all the ancient brood our superstitious fools admire, and hold their lead more precious than thy burnished gold, thou hadst been their exchequer. Let others carve the rest, it will suffice, I, on thy grave this epitaph in size. Here lies a king that ruled as he thought fit the universal monarchy of wit. Here lies two flamens, and both these the best. Apollo's first, at last, the true God's priest. End quote. There was no full memoir of Dr. Dunn until it was the privilege of the present writer, in 1900, to publish his life and letters in two substantial volumes. Since then, in 1912, his poetical works have been edited and sifted with remarkable delicacy and judgment by Professor Grierson. It is now, therefore, as easy as it can be expected ever to be to follow the career of this extraordinary man, with all its cold and hot fits, its rage of lyrical amativeness, its Roman passion, and the high and clouded austerity of its final Anglicanism. Dunn is one of the most fascinating, in some ways one of the most inscrutable, figures in our literature, and we may contemplate him with instruction from his first wild escapade into the Azores down to his voluntary penitence in the pulpit and the winding sheet. End of chapter 4